Welcome to Crimeland. My name's Julie J and I have a quick favour to ask. Well, to Rini, firstly, if you could download this episode of Crimeland, I would be eternally grateful as this is what counts towards charts. And also, if you have enjoyed this episode, I really appreciate if you could take the time to rate or review the podcast on iTunes. A quick shout out as well to the gorgeous people who have reviewed the podcast so far. Your kind words have been so lovely and just mean so much. So thanks a million. A quick disclaimer as well that absolutely no offence is meant to any of the people discussed in this episode. This week, I'm talking to the very funny, the very lovely... Park Williams. About the trial of Bernhard Getz. No. Wait, is, is this the, this isn't the Cork one, is it? This is not the Cork one, but I think, I, the, now this is, I love the way I invite people on and there's like a tenuous link. So when I did El Chapo, Stephen Mullen, as we know, his mother is Argentinian. So I was like, you'd be perfect for this. Oh, and he God. was like, you know that El Chapo is Colombian. I was like, but for the Spanish bits, like for the pronunciation, you'd be great. So that was a great episode. But this tenuous link is that it's set in New York City. And sure, you used to live in New York City. I used to live in New York City. New York. So that's my link. Perfect. And, okay, so uh, so let's hear it. I think, I've, I think I might know this one. Do you know what? Feel free to go ding, ding, ding when you're like, yeah, no, this is ringing a bell. This is ringing no, a bell. I'm going to be but silent for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> you will. No, you'll definitely have heard of this one. Um, and there's actually, it's quite current at the moment because there's something on Netflix about it, which I'll get to. But in terms of sources as well, just to say, say obviously our old friend Wikipedia, I think we should all be donating two euro a month to Wikipedia. It's a great resource. Use it all the time. Oxygen.com by Gina, uh, there was a great article by Gina Tron where she discussed this case and also the web- website, which is a really good website, um, especially if you're a complete nerd like me. It's called Famous Trials and there was a great article on that as well by Professor Douglas Linder. And there is a show at the moment, I think it dropped on Netflix last week. It's called Trial by Media great show and one of the episodes is actually dedicated to this case trial by media i like that That's it's good. a new one i think you'd really like a project it's really interesting so i actually came across this story on trial by media which obviously focuses a little bit more in-depth than i will be you know it's a bit more of an in-depth focus than i'll be doing um on the case and it's available on netflix now, so i'd really recommend it so i'll be referencing Probably that a little bit as I go on. It, but yeah I think I think I think you'd like it. Honestly, there's I think there's no, like seven that, episodes. Really, but I'm not well going to watch it. Oh, okay. You, I won't take that person. Okay. Need, you know what it needs? It needs and it needs one more person to verify that it's good before I'll watch it. That's everything. So what you're saying is you don't trust me. No, 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 no. I'm saying that if anybody ever tells you to do something, unless somebody else goes, "Oh yeah, that's deadly," then you won't really do it. You'll just You'll probably just be like, yeah, I probably will. And then until someone else says it, you'll be like, oh, I was meant to get around to that. And then you'll do it. But never the first. Never that's the, never well, the that's first very true. Yeah. You probably. 
you probably need a second party to just get it over the line. If you if you're gonna if you're gonna spend an hour doing something or whatever it is a series, you need someone else to back it up and say, yeah, they're not they're not lying. It's worth your time. Okay, fair enough. Well, listen, that person will come, and you know when they do, and you have the green light, and you sit down and you watch your Netflix. I hope you say, look, do you know what? Judy was right. I do love this show. I will, and I'll and I'll and I'll say I'll I'll text you. I want you to text me immediately and I will screenshot that and I will keep it forever. So the case against a white engineer named Bern, Bernhard Getz or Bernie Getz pivoted around his shooting of four African-American teams, Troy Canty, Barry Allen, James Ramsour and Daryl Cavey during a confrontation on a New York City subway train. The incident took place on December 22nd, 1984, a time when New York crime was at an all-time high and the subway was such a dangerous place that local volunteer groups such as the Guardian Angels had been established, which consisted of red beret-wearing men who patrolled the carriages to prevent robbery and intimidation on various routes. These were like the Bloods or these are just citizens that are, that are wearing red berets? <laughs> These, these are citizens who are wearing red berets, who are like performing citizens' arrest, who are trying to prevent, you know, crime from taking place on these subways. And they were just like local guys who got together and were like, we need to do something because the crime situation, especially in the subways, out of control. This was in 1984. So this was in the 80s. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, so, so this guy kills four African-Americans. Well, he shot them, so they, they weren't killed. But just a bit of background on this, and I'll just give you the kind of backstory here. So during the 1980s, New York City experienced unprecedented rates of crime. So murders during the decade averaged almost 2,000 a year. And in the city's increasingly dangerous subway system, 38 crimes a day on average were reported. So, like, it was really, really dangerous. Yeah, yeah, so citizens did not feel safe. This quadruple shooting on a New York City subway car during a volatile period in the city's history ignited a heated public discussion over the shooter Bernie Getz himself. Was he an aggressive racist or a vigilante defending himself? So what happened? Uh, so the incident occurred after four African-American teens, Troy Canty, who was 19, Barry Allen, who was also 19, James Ramsour, who was 18, and Daryl Cavey, who was 19, approached Bernhard Getz, then 37, on a southbound two train in Lower Manhattan on the 22nd of December 1984. The boys concealing screwdrivers, so they, they were actually, they were carrying screwdrivers on them, planned to visit a video arcade where they hoped to steal quarters. Each of the boys, 18 or 19 years of age, and high school dropouts all had a criminal arrest record. Okay, so he's so, and then he's he's obviously shot these guys. Like, well, let me yeah. tell you, let me tell you what led up to this shooting. So, their ensuing exchange has been disputed by the parties involved. So, these boys either asked Getz for $5 or demanded it. Canty Allen and Ramsour insisted that they had merely been panhandling, i.e. asking for money so they could go play video games. So they just said, hey, uh, you know, hey, you know, mister, have you got $5? 
that's what they claimed they had said to him whereas he said no they they just demanded the money off me now what happened next was nothing short of unprecedented so whatever way it happened five dollars was mentioned whether it was demanded or whether they were just chancing their arm gets pulled out a handgun and opened fire on the teens shooting all four of them two were struck in the chest and two were shot in the back while they all survived christ this guy is after they said yo man give me five dollars five dollars and then he starts unloading so he really did not want to part with that five dollars no apparently according to the boys and he didn't dispute it that when they asked whatever way this the five dollars was um was brought into conversation he said oh i've got five dollars for all of you and then open fire so gets pulled out the handgun open fire shot all four of them and as i as i said you know two were shot in the chest two were shot in the back while they all survived, KB, poor old KB, uh, with Daryl KB, suffered severe brain damage and as a result of his injuries, remains paralysed to this day. Did so the other three... Shot? Yeah, so the other three, when I say they emerged, like, obviously they, they were shot, um, they were injured, but, you know, they recovered and they were fine. But this poor fella, severe brain damage and was paralysed. Do you know what? Which is weird. Guns don't kill people as as much as we think they do. People seem to survive gunshots a lot. Um, yeah. Oh, do they? Well, I had a boss in I had a boss in New York, and he was shot eight times. Uh, wow. Yeah, eight times, and uh, outside for a check, and um, then of course Fifty Cent went on to beat that record, getting shot nine times. But up until then, he was the man. As police searched for the gunman, news of the shooting, along with the sketch, the, the composite sketch of the mysterious shooter, made national and international headlines. The New York Post reporter Steve Dunleafy noted in Netflix's Trial by Media, which, as I've already referenced it, really, really good. Check it out. This is the second episode on it. Um, that the incident quickly became a sensational story. So the in the press, we dubbed him the subway vigilante, Dunleavy said. It probably did create in many people's minds what a, what a vigilante gunman would look like. The incident became symbolic of the gargantuan, huge crime problem in the city, which in the depths of the crack cocaine epidemic, which was in the depths of a crack cocaine epidemic at the time. So many New Yorkers, tired of muggings, robberies and intimidation, empathised with the then nameless shooter. The media even compared him to um, Charles Bronson. In, do you remember that 1974 movie, Death Wish? I don't. Do you know I know the name Charles Bronson. Is he the, yeah. is he, he's the uh, Australian guy, right? That, he was Australian. It could have been. It was well in the film anyway. He's like plays this architect who becomes a vigilante after an attack on his wife and daughter. So again, we're oh, no, viewing this guy Bernie gets as like a really sympathetic character. So even though they didn't know who he was, just based on the information they had, they were like, yeah, no, we're on his team. So after weeks of media, well, I mean a couple of weeks of media coverage and huge public interest, gets turned himself in uh, into the police. On New Year's Eve. So while Getz appeared reserved, so he's this blonde haired guy. I had a blonde haired uh, picture in my head. 
turned himself in and he did come across as kind of reserved like a shy guy t-shirt but then, denim jeans I can you can tell this guy well I think in Getz's defense I think we were all wearing a t-shirt and denim jeans and they either that or aluminous cycling shorts so Getz spoke openly which this is a bit I suppose even though he came across as kind of reserved it was strange the way he spoke about the crime so he spoke really openly about the attack, which fueled massive debates about crime, self-defense and gun ownership. And, of course, like racial tensions. So Getz told investigators he went in, spoke to the cops, like basically they press record and he they didn't even have to ask a question. Like he just volunteered everything, like just told the whole story. He said he'd been violently mugged three years earlier by three teens, and as a result, had applied for a gun license but was rejected. He then bought a gun from Florida Ooh. and had it transported to his apartment in Greenwich, which also served as his place of work as an electrical repair technician. The NRA, which is, of course, the National Rifle Association, used his inability to buy a weapon at the time to put pressure on New York City to relax its gun laws in the aftermath of this incident. So the gun, yeah. So the so Getz had obviously, you know, like he had become ta- daily tabloid fodder everywhere he went. So did like this swarm of cameras and reporters. So one of the more interesting aspects of him was that, as I said, although he appeared meek, he did seem to court the media attention, and the way he spoke about the crime itself, like, was just astonishing. So he did interviews with Geraldo Rivera. And Barbara Walters, his face and name were plastered on shirts. He was kind of, I suppose, propelled this hero status amongst, you know, New Yorkers. So lawyer Ron Kuby, who represented Darrow KB in a civil case against Getz, and he uh, had played quite a significant role in the in the Netflix adaptation of this or the I should say documentary. So he told the producers of the show that his client's mother was, quote, absolutely horrified that the man who had done this to her son was being held up as some sort of hero. So also, the way... Uh, massive social issue, short-sighted social issue where they're, they're portraying him as the Batman character of, of yes. standing up for civil liberties or whatever like that, when the actual key problem is that these kids uh, don't have anything and society isn't doing anything to help them. I don't think they're just... Exactly. Yeah. So like, per, and I think actually the more people learned of the case, it did become, it was clear that it was certainly racially motivated. Like essentially Bernie Getz would not have shot these kids if they had been white. Like that, that was the issue. Yeah. So, but the way, so the wave of public opinion did become a bit more divisive after the police released Getz's interrogation tape where he came across as a man lacking any discernible regret and spoke about the victims in like a really callous, unemotional way. So he said, I wanted to kill those guys. I wanted to maim those guys. Oh, he claimed, yeah, it, it was really, it was almost sadistic when you actually, when you actually watched it. So he claimed to have shot one of the teens more than once. So this was poor Daryl KB. The cops, as I said, literally just pressed record and he was like a slurry truck exploding, like just like told them the whole thing. So he said that he had shot poor Daryl KB more than once. And this is the poor guy who ended up with brain damage and was paralyzed because the boy didn't seem harsh enough the first time. Now, Getz said that he had told the boy, you seem all right, here's another before shooting him again. Now, 
Whether or not he actually said this or had kind of imagined himself saying this is open to conjecture because the witnesses on the train who had all fled, obviously, when this was unfolding, they had all said that they just heard five shots really, really quick, like bang, 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 bang. Like there was no pause. So that would negate him saying, you know, it's almost a bit too Charles Bronson, like taking a moment. Oh, and here's another. It's it's a bit too Hollywood. But this is what he said he had. Like this, this came from his own mouth. It's like his imagined memory with his actual memory. The two have kind of morphed. So the fact that he said this would actually prove, of course, to be one of the more problematic aspects of the case because it would obviously negate any self-defense whatsoever but rather paint Guess as a trigger-happy aggressor intent on causing serious harm to this already injured teen. So if you were saying, I shot these guys because I thought they were going to rob me, which is what he said, this was his whole defence. So obviously many activists, as I've already said, accused Guess of being racist and said, look, as I, as I said, like, you know, that he would not have shot these kids if, if they had been white. And Reverend Sharpton, who, like, is a face you definitely know, you know, he's like a major... Um, civil rights activist within the African-American community. But he had said that Getz was, which I think, like, you know, sums it up really well, that Getz was probably traumatised from the previous mugging and therefore had stereotyped all young black men as muggers. So he claimed that, you know, they had been violent with him in the previous mugging and that's what Reverend Sharpton was saying. Like, obviously this man was traumatised to some extent and when he saw these young black men, uh, he had been previously mugged by young black men and he just presumed he was going to get mugged. And that's what was happening. So the trial itself sparked huge media interest and the courthouse was subject to many demonstrations ranging from those who supported guests and were angry at the mounting crime statistics in the city and the guardian angels who also supported guests to civil rights groups who insisted, as I've already said, that this was a racially motivated crime and nothing less. So Troy Canty, who was one of the young men, uh, he spent more than two days on the stand describing what happened. So under questioning, he admitted that he had used crack on cocaine, that he did have some criminal convictions. He explained that himself and his friends had boarded the train and he did admit that actually their intention had been to rob video games at a video arcade. And he testified that he was three or four feet away from guests when he asked him, Mr. Can I have my dollars? Guest responded, you can all have it. He said, he gra- I grabbed my chest and then I fell to the floor. He told George he heard subsequent shots and then the voice of Daryl Cavey crying, why did he shoot me? Why did he shoot me? Oh so God. on cross-examination, Canty admitted that he might have said, give me five dollars rather than, can I have $5? He denied, however, telling a reporter... There's a way you can say no. You don't need to open up a load and, and blow the heads off four people. Exactly. It's like, regardless whether he demanded or not, like, does not, I mean, that does not ju- justify the response, like, on any level. So he denied, however, telling a reporter of the National Enquirer, so this is the guy, Canty, who was on the stand, that he had said... If we get caught, we plea bargain a felony down to a misdemeanor and then walk away. He also denied telling an officer on the train in the minutes after the shooting. So when he's lying there bleeding, 
Uh, he denied telling an officer, we were robbing the white guy and he shot us. So this is what the officer said that he had told him. And then two of the other shooting victims were also brought to the stand. So James Ramster called, uh, so he was called the day after uh, Canty. He refused to take the stand despite having received immunity from prosecution. So when the court officer reached out with the Bible, Ramster pushed it away. Ordered by the judge to take the oath, Ramster hands in pocket said, I refuse. So the judge cited Ramster for contempt and he was led out. And then the other guy, Barry Allen, who had not been granted immunity from prosecution, asserted his Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself in response to nearly every question. It was probably just, you know, the case that they did have some intent to rob, rob someone or something. But the real question was, like, you know, did this act warrant the response? Guess was adamant that they were going to rob him. He was like, that was what was going to happen. You know, like the fact that, you know, one fellow was like, I don't want to testify. The other guy was like, we weren't going to rob him. And the other guy basically pleaded the fifth to everything. Okay, like maybe they did have robbery on their mind. Um, Guess was acquitted of attempted murder and first degree assault charges by a mostly white jury in 1987. Guess was only convicted on the charge of carrying um, an unlicensed weapon in a public place. So he was sentenced to one year in Rikers jail. I worked beside Rikers Island. Did you? Do, do you know what it is? I've heard it. What is it? An is it on an? So it's obviously an actual island, is it? No, it's a boat. It's a huge, huge, huge. No. Yeah, and it's a jail, and it's called Rikers Island. And at, uh, sometimes now they're mainly just on the dot. Now I worked. I mean, I worked right in front of it. Like the cars parked outside your house. That's how close I was to Rikers Island. You could see them playing wow. all at night or during the day and all. They're running around the yards. This is a huge boat. I mean, like you've never seen that. Like a and uh, I worked. I was working in the South Bronx at the time, and. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a crazy, it was a crazy place down there. And that's where you'd see everybody coming to visit their family and all like, yeah, it was mad. Well, I mean, it's supposed to be like just one of the toughest prisons ever. So, I mean, you know, he did serve eight months there. I'd imagine he found that eight months fairly tough. So in 1996, 11 years after the shooting, he was sued for damages in civil court for permanently injuring Cavey. During that trial, Cavey's lawyers pointed out that Getz had made racial slurs about black and Hispanic people during a 1980 building association meeting. Getz admitted using those slurs and did say he had been ashamed to use them. The mostly non-white jurors determined that Getz had acted rec recklessly and had deliberately inflicted emotional distress on Cavey. Cavey was supported $43 million but never saw any of it because gets filed for bankruptcy less than a week after the verdict. So just one day after the civil trial concluded, uh, the New York Daily News lead led with the headline, No Hero Never Was, in reference to Getz. Did they get paid? He ne They never saw a penny because he filed for bankruptcy, so they never got any money out of him whatsoever. No way. But like his, the lawyer was adamant that his mother just wanted him to be held accountable, like that. That was the main thing. Yeah. Um. So I and think I think she was eight eight months in in Rikers Island would have fucked him up. Well, I mean, you would hope that. I mean, certainly, like for what he inflicted on these young men, and especially Daryl Cavey, who very much got a life sentence. 
Um, like, you know, you would hope that that would have been the case. But like, at least for his mom's sake, especially the, the newspapers were like, no, this guy was never a hero, which kind of, you know, was a triumph for them. Yeah. So Gets, now 72, still lives in the same small apartment in Manhattan. Uh, it's unclear what he does for work now. He unsuccessfully ran for mayor in New York City in 2001, telling the LA Times, I tell, I tell people there are 10 doofuses running for mayor and I want my name added for the list. His platform at the time consisted of, like he was very, he's a big vegetarian, really into vegetarian uh, cooking, all that kind of crack. So he wanted to have vegetarian menus at city schools, jails and mental health facilities. He also claimed he wouldn't have been approached on the subway by the teens if he was a vegetarian at the time because, quote, vegetarians have better karma. So he's mad for the veggies. Uh, but he was arrested in 2013 at age 65 for allegedly selling $30 worth of marijuana to an undercover cop. He also became an advocate for New York City. This is a bit random, but he's mad for squirrels. So he became an advocate for squirrels and keeps busy nursing squirrels. Um, and he even nurses some of them in his own home. So Get said in a 2017 interview, included at the end of the Trial by Media episode, that he has absolutely no regrets about the shooting. I don't think it's the type of thing you regret, he said, adding that there are many things in my life I regret. I have made many, many blunders. I don't think that was one of them. So there have been, just to end on this, because I think you referenced it there with the Batman, um, Podrick, as well, but just to say, like, there have obviously been many references to guests in popular, popular culture as well. So he's referenced in the Billy Joel song, We Didn't Start the Fire, and in Lou Reed's song, Hold On. And also, of course, the 1993 film, which actually then became quite controversial for all the, like, I mean, generally white men going around, like, just ma killing people in mass shootings. But Falling Down was apparently partly inspired by the shooting. And then more recently, of course, the one that everyone's familiar with, of course, the shooting inspired the plot of the, well, part of the plot of the 2019 film Joker. Ah, used to picking up the Joker. It's that, part yeah. of the and get. Very similar. And the fact that he's held up as a subway vigilante when actually he's a very sadistic figure, very much based on Bernhard Getz. And that is the story of Bernhard Getz. There you go. That was a good story. Oh, it is. It's very interesting. Now, obviously, you kind of know most of it, but I think it's still worth watching the Trial by Media and the other episodes are great as well. But it's just, it's a fascinating story. Um, it's funny how, you know, the public initially thought one thing and then when they got a little bit more information on it, probably went the other way. But, you know, just, I mean, it's very sad. Media needs that swing, doesn't it? Like the Amanda Knox, that kind of thing. Oh, I can't wait to do Amanda Knox. That would no, be a good, good one. one for you. Um, um, it, that you could look up yourself. It's a trial. Now you're pro it's a it's a fantastic book you can read. Um, it's called Devil in the Grove by a okay. lawyer called Fraser Goodwood. But he's also went on to be uh, America's first African American. Uh, Secretary of Law or something like that, whatever the, the highest position in, in, he became a Senator of Law or whatever like that in 
like the 90s or whatever that are late something i can't remember the book now but fraser goodwood devil in the grove it's a fascinating story it's about four murders down in mississippi in uh or mississippi or alabama alabama that's what it was oh okay i'll definitely check that we might get you on again padre to talk about that one it won a it it, it won a pulitzer prize but it's called fraser goodwood oh. but the the case the case um, before people got accused of four African Americans got accused of rape and rape the, and and if a white woman accuses a black man of rape in the fifties in Alabama, it was automatic guilt by trial, and then your one admitted on her deathbed that she never, they never did it. But the whole case is very, very interesting. Like you don't even, it was only 30 years later, but there's a whole, like they, they were supposed to die, but they all died in mysterious, con- in mysterious circumstance. And, um, Ooh, tra- 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 it's very good. It, it, it's, uh, it's a very good book, very good audio book. It's read by, um, Oh, I can't think of his name. I've got shy information for you on this, but it's a, it's an unbelievably you're, good book. You're great for the audio book. We'll definitely check that out. So the title is Frasers. The title is, is called? called The Devil in the Grove. The Devil in the Grove. So I'm actually, I'm going to go order that now. The Devil in the Grove. And should we might have you back for that one, Patrick? That'd be fun. I'd love to chat about that one. It's a, it's a, it's a oh, class. Okay. It's going to blow your mind. It's well, look, I always like to get my mind blown. Um, it's something I'm quite partial to, Patrick. It's been an absolute pleasure. If we're looking for you online, are you on the Instagram and all the rest? I'm on Podge Williams and Instagram, former comedian, and uh, wasn't that good anyway. So, you are, you will be. No. You um, Audrey, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for doing Crime Land again I promise this one will not fall foul of technical difficulty <laughs> don't ever promise thanks so much Julie thanks so much Patrick chat soon bye this podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network